Um, my name is Pastor Tina, and I serve as one of the pastors here, and I'm so glad to be here with you today. I'm not the regular preaching pastor. Normally, Pastor David, our senior pastor, is here in this service, uh, but I'm glad I get to be here with you today. Um, I want to talk to you about Genesis. We just came out of a series, if you've been with us for the past few weeks, where we were talking about the Bible, sort of in big general terms, right? We were learning that we could indeed wrestle with the Bible, that we could study it, learn about it, um, not be sure about a certain text and question it. We could dive deep into it and allow it to challenge us in how we think and how we see the Bible and ourselves. But if we really want to understand the Bible, it's helpful to start in the beginning, right? It's important to know where this story begins, this overarching story that's told in this book. I heard a comedian talk about Genesis once, and she said, In the beginning there was nothing. God said, Let there be light, and there was light. There was still nothing, but you could see it a whole lot better. So I want to start with the elephant in the room, right? So just bear with me for a minute. If I ruffle your feathers for a few minutes, please keep an open mind and let's go together through this journey. Many of us were taught uh, somewhere along the way to believe in the literal meaning of the Bible, particularly Genesis and the account of the creation story. So we read that God created everything in six days and rested on the seventh, and any other scientific notion has to be rejected, right? We have to reject evolution. We have to reject the Big Bang Theory. Or our belief in the Bible has to be rejected, right? Otherwise, we can't hold the two together. We can't seem to pair science and religion, science and our faith. This is something that I grew up understanding and thinking and believing. And if this is your understanding of the relationship between faith and science, I want to apologize to you on behalf of all the preachers, pastors, teachers, churches, etc., that have taught you this, because I do not believe it to be true. Uh, I want you to know that this way of thinking has also and continues to attribute, at least in part, to the decline of the modern church. And here's why, and I, I mean this seriously, this really is a statistic that we've learned over the years, is that this gen, the generations coming up, the generations that are a little bit younger than me and maybe a little bit younger than some of you, they've grown up with science uh, in everything they do, right? They learn it from day one, even in elementary school. They understand science to be part of the way we live. And when the, a religion cannot go hand in hand with science, then the religion has to be rejected. They didn't grow up with a Bible, not all children today and young adults today grew up with a Bible in their household where uh, they had sort of a biblical worldview that could sort of, you know, pretend like, well, that science thing, that may not be true. I believe in this Bible. They grew up the opposite. Many of them don't have Bibles in their home. They didn't grow up going to church. This generation is less and less churched. So when they hear that religion and science can't go together, they reject one of them. And most of the time they reject religion. So they don't even step foot in a church because that is what they think that we think, right? So we've got to do something about that. We've got to explain to them that indeed that is not true. In fact, faith and science can go together hand in hand quite nicely. Um, <clears throat> I don't want you today to check your brain at the door 
right? Nor any day in church. In fact, that's part of the beauty of being a Methodist, a United Methodist, is that we believe in reason. We believe in using your brain in knowledge and experience. It all goes together. We also believe in the primary uh, value of Scripture. Scripture is still our primary source of our faith. That's the most important tool. Reason, experience, and tradition all help us sort of navigate that faith through the scripture. So don't hear me say that the scripture is not important. Um, let's take a, a look before we go into the scriptures. Let's talk, uh, look, look at for a minute what science teaches us about creation. For many thousands of years, first of all, we thought that the, the world was flat, right? And then we learned that it was round. We thought the universe centered around humans and earth. We thought the sun revolved around the earth. Scientists saw the universe as anthropocentric, unchanging, mechanistic, orderly, predictable, and hierarchical. Christians viewed God in much the same way. God was sort of this static, predictable, omniscient and omnipotent, but not really loving or engaging people down here on earth. God was this thing out there, right? In the 16th century, Galileo discovered that it is not the sun that revolves around the earth, but the other way around. In fact, Galileo, with the development of a telescope, was able to see out into the vast, to see other planets, other stars, and begin to posit, along with other scientists, that perhaps it was the earth and other planets that revolved around the sun. This, along with other discoveries, gave rise to the beginnings of the opposition between science and faith. Galileo was a man of deep faith. It's told that when he discovered this, when he saw this for the first time in his telescope, can you imagine? Can you imagine seeing the universe in that way for the very first time? That he got down on his knees immediately and worshiped God. It gave him awe. It gave him a sense that his God was great and powerful and wonderful and magnificent. He had the same scriptures that we had, but he believed this God was beautiful and wonderful. He saw the vastness and the mystery of God as a blessing, not a curse. But the church leaders of his times rejected him. They, in fact, told him to not share this information with anybody else. Now, of course, he did. He shared it through letters and other ways, kind of snuck it out. But the church leaders of his time rejected him completely. And they rejected the idea that the earth revolves around the sun, which of course we now know is fact, right? Today we also know that the universe is about 13.8 billion years old. The universe has been expanding since its birth. It continues to grow and expand. Our home planet Earth is not the center of the universe, which is sometimes a little shocking, isn't it? We think we are the center of the universe, right? Even, or it's not even the center of our own galaxy, right? We know that the sun is the center of our galaxy and we're just one of the planets that goes around the sun and we, uh, our part and our sun even is a medium-sized star in a medium-sized galaxy. The Milky Way is not the biggest galaxy and listen to this. The Milky Way, our galaxy that contains our sun and our planets is one of 100 billion galaxies in the universe. 
Wow, that's a lot. 100 billion galaxies, and we're just one planet of many revolving around the sun in one of those medium-sized galaxies. Now, with respect to the actual beginning, creation, believe it or not, it was actually a Roman Catholic priest who first proposed the Big Bang Theory of the origin of the universe. This is a common and popular belief these days among scientists. This priest was also an astronomer and a physics professor, and he not only proposed the theory of the expansion of the universe, but he was the first to note that the expanding universe might in fact be traced back to a single point of origin called singularity. So the Big Bang Theory explains how what happened from the point of something forward. But that point of something is what is mystery, is what we don't know, right? Because you can't form something out of nothing, right? So it's that point before the Big Bang that is the mystery that scientists still are trying to figure out. And one theory is this point of singularity. This offers the idea that one single source existed before time, before light, before dark, before anything. And that in this one single, single thing, this single moment and being and space and time, smaller than a sugar cube, all of life was contained in that. You, me, the trees, the earth, the universe, all contained in that one single source, smaller than a sugar cube. And from that time, it began to expand, right? The Big Bang happened and things were created. It expanded dramatically with the Big Bang and continued to expand for billions of years. We continue to get bigger as a universe. Now, let me look at Genesis, okay? We've had a little science lesson. This is the commonly held beliefs in science today, but let's read from Genesis. If you have your Bible and you want to read along, um, it is most likely found on page one. <laughs> if you don't have your Bible, you can look at the blue Bibles in your pew, and I'm guessing it's on page one there as well. So read with me just a few verses here. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And now the earth was formless and empty, darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. And God said, let there be light, and there was light. God saw that the light was good, and he separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night, and there was evening. And then I want you to skip over to verse 26. It says, then God said, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air and over the livestock and over all the earth and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. <clears throat> Let me provide a little bit of background for Genesis. First of all, how many of you learned that, as I did growing up, that Genesis, along with the first five, the other first five books of the Bible, were all written by Moses? Show of hands, anyone? Yeah, okay. I learned that as well. And that is a traditional belief 
about the first five books of the Bible. However, it's not what I believe today, nor is it what most biblical scholars believe either. First, the events in the first five books of the Bible contain a lot of things that happened after Moses. So that would have been interesting for him to be writing things that happened about after he died. And also he wrote, it would have meant he was writing in third person because it talks about Moses. So Moses would have been saying, Moses did this and Moses did that. And while some people might think that's entertaining, Pastor Tina thinks that that is not the way the Bible was written. In fact, we think that there were probably three or four writers of Genesis who had their works put together or put the works together themselves. Perhaps an editor put them all together. And while that may confound some of us, we think, well, why didn't they just leave them separate? I don't know, but I do know they wanted them together for a purpose. And in that, I find that these several different perspectives found in Genesis, even a little bit different accounts of the creation story, give us a broader picture of God, God's people, and God's world. This first chapter of Genesis is not a historical account. It is poetry. There was not a reporter on the sidelines of the universe watching creation happen and then who wrote it down immediately. In fact, people were the last thing created in this creation narrative, right? So no one was there to write it down. In fact, we believe Genesis came together sometime around the 6th century BCE in its written form. Now, we believe it was passed down orally for years and years before that, before it was written down. And perhaps somebody was inspired by God. Perhaps somebody um, felt the Holy Spirit tell them this is exactly how creation happened. Perhaps they used their imagination to figure this out. But what you need to know is that when this was written down was a time when the Israelites, God's people, were in exile in Babylon. They had been kicked out of their land. They had been defeated. They were living away from their temple And you can imagine what kind of state of mind they were in. Their lives were marked by defeat and chaos. They were surrounded by all sorts of theology, some of which offered their own versions of the creation story. And many of those creation stories are extremely violent. Um, they, They propose a God that was angry, a God that was conquering. But the Israelites had their own story of creation, one that they wanted to remind themselves of, one they had been passed down orally for hundreds or thousands of years. And this creation story told of a God that created out of nothing, out of grace and inspiration, spoke life into being and gave creative power to the creatures. This story in the poetic form it's found today in Genesis 1 was probably repeated thousands of times by God's people as a reminder that out of seemingly nothing, God can create something and call it good. You can imagine how this would have provided solace and comfort in their time in Babylon and other times throughout their history. Pastor Johnny put it well last night or, and today in his sermon. He said that um, this part of Genesis was sort of serving as an affirmation of their faith. Right? It was like a song in their heart that they could carry around with them no matter where they were. At some point they wrote it down, and at some point they believed that it was important enough to put it on page one of their sacred scriptures. The, the writers of Genesis weren't ancient scientists. They were ancient theologians, meaning they had beliefs about God to share, 
beliefs that they all shared with each other and that they wanted to share with others. They wanted everyone to understand that this great God they had encountered, the God of the universe, the creator of all, this writer or writers had something to say about God, God's people, and God's world. So let's see what we can decipher from these scriptures as to what these ancient theologians had to say. First, God spoke creation into being. With the phrase repeated each time, God said, let there be light. God said, God said. God's word brings stability and brand new possibilities. Just like that, God spoke life. God spoke and the world was created. Imagine the power of God's words in your own life. Many of you have experienced that. You've had a dear friend share with you some words from scripture or some words from God, right? They've brought the presence of God to you and they've spoken life into you. And then imagine the words that don't speak life into you, those words that bring destruction and harm and difficulty. Also, God is the main actor here. God does all the creating out of God's own will, seemingly with symmetry and intention, right? It's very sort of symmetrical how he orders each thing, each creation. God creates and gives order to creation, uh, and it's not about God creating everything, but how God creates each thing. Right? That's where the beauty is found. There is space for every creature, food for every creature, and the seeds of creation are given to continue creating. This is where so much power and beauty is found, I think, in, the, in that we have been given the power to continue creating. That's quite a lot of power to be given and responsibility. This says to me that while our God is big and powerful and magnanimous, our God also wants to share in the beauty of creation with us. If you've ever watched the birth of a child or an animal, or perhaps you've created a piece of art, perhaps you've sung a piece of art like our choir did earlier, perhaps you've created something out of nothing, been inspired and created something, you know that power of creativity that we are given. I think we take it for granted, but it is indeed a gift from God. Finally, God saw that it was good. God saw all God had created and saw that it was good. Of course, God is sort of bragging on God's self here. You know, I made this thing and it is good. Oh, and I made this other thing and it's good. But while I just, I do think that there is something to the fact that the goodness comes in that God created it. Now, after me just talking about how God's given us this power to create ourselves, I don't want you to think that we can't create anything good because of course we can. But I will tell you that in my own experience, there's this thing called me creating something and there's this thing of me creating something with God, either inspired by God in hand with God, right? A lot of times I feel like God gives me these great ideas and then I take them into my own hands, sort of leave God at the drawing board and go forward with my own power, my own gifts, my own skills, my own knowledge, right? How many times have you guys done that? And those things will be good. You can create good things, but if you really want to create something beautiful, magnanimous, Be inspired by God and and take God on the journey with you. In fact, even better, look for where God is already creating, where God is already working, and join God in those efforts. 
So what I'm hoping today is that the science that I've shared today doesn't freak you out too bad. I'm hoping that you can read these scriptures, that you can read, in fact, this first account of creation in Genesis, and it will make you see how beautiful and wonderful our God is, that our God is a God that, that creates out of nothing, that creates with intention, that God creates things that are good, and that God gave humans the ability to create along with God. God made us in God's image. That's a really big deal. And most of the other creation stories don't share anything like that. I think this is part of the core message of what the ancient scripture writers wanted us to know, that God created and it was good. I want you to know that science and faith don't have to be mutually exclusive. They don't have to be at odds with each other. If I told, and many of you are thinking, well, but I, I, I need to believe that this is true. Well, I'm going to tell you, after I've told you all of that, that I believe everything in here is true. I don't have to believe that everything in here is absolutely factual. Even Jesus taught in parables, in stories, right? When he taught those stories, people didn't say, well, did that actually happen? No, they got the truth of his story, right? If I told you today, many of you will, will know the story of the boy who cried wolf. If I tell that story, you're not going to ask me, well, did that actually happen? No, but you can find the truth of that story, right? I believe this is what our scriptures hold. There's absolutely historical accounts in here. There's absolutely um, some, some history that we need to know, dates, important things that we can find in this Bible. But there's also poetry, there's also instructions. There's all kinds of different genres in this book or this actual collection of books. And so we need to read it as such. We need to hold that when we hear about science or something that blows our mind, as in Galileo's experience, which had to be that for him, that we don't just shove it aside because it's not written in here, but instead we believe that in the mystery of God, in the goodness of God, and that those things can go together. I don't have to understand exactly how the universe was created. But what I do need to know is that my God is good, that my God creates, that my God loves me and created me and you in God's own image. And I take that responsibility seriously. I take, it I take the responsibility not only in my own life, but in looking for that image of God in each of you. It's one of the tasks I charge myself with when I'm talking to people, especially people that might be, well, less difficult to talk, or more difficult to talk to occasionally. I look for the image of God in them. And when you do that, the world changes. Perhaps that's part of the message that these ancient writers were trying to pass on to us. May it be so with us. Will you pray with me? Holy and gracious God, we thank you for your creation. We thank you, God, that you gave us a brain to think, that you gave us scientists to learn stuff. God, that you gave us mystery, that you gave us a heart, that you've given us experiences of you. Lord, we can take it all together. It does not have to be either or. It can be both and. And we thank you for that, Lord. 
Help us to live into that. Help us to find the truths that you want us to find in these ancient texts. And help us to continue to know that you gave us life, that you created us and said it was good, that you created us in your own image. Help us to take that charge seriously, Lord. Help us to live in such a way to honor that and to honor you. It's in Jesus' name, amen.